in the um, go-round in the group. Every one of us has found a little bit of home, a little bit of uh, authenticity, a little bit of dignity. Even those of us who were speaking about how horrendously horrible and difficult it was, it was so clear to everyone in the room that something had come together a bit more. There was a bit more sense of being at home within oneself. Maybe not exactly the home that one had imagined. <laughs> but, but, but home nonetheless. And it seems to me that the question is how we can not leave that home here, but how we can continue to express it and to find ourselves at home wherever we find ourselves to be. It's so important in a complex world, the complexity of relationship, the complexity of work, the complexity if one lives in a city of simply walking down the street and having to be attentive to so many things in that environment, the complexity of of daily life often. I think it's so essential for us to remember the utter simplicity of the practice, that life may be complex, but the practice is always totally and utterly simple and really doesn't change according to circumstance, according to conditions. You know, there's all sorts of ways that we can be more or less creative in our daily life, and that's all really helpful. But the basic practice is really, really simple and doesn't become less simple. It's always simple. In the beginning, in the middle, in the end, it's always simple. And so it's very handy in this practice. We always have our home with us. We always have the body. We always have the mind. And so we can over and over again touch home within in this utter simplicity of practice, we can remember to feel the body. At any moment, it's possible to feel the feet against the floor. This is such a powerful thing, just that. Feet against the floor. Whatever environment one is in, usually the feet are touching the floor. (laughs) This is a really great thing to remember. And such a big thing when there's a lot of complexity or a lot of strong emotion uh, in, in the field of relationship to remember that one can be at home within oneself. So to really use the body, to use the soles of the feet, to uh, touch the breathing, to find oneself at home in the midst of the breath. And to also find oneself at home in the midst of mental states, you know, in the midst of emotion, in the midst of thought, to recognize that if we're aware, if we haven't lost ourselves, we really are at home. I think it's so important to get behind the various forms that we have, are finding ourselves to be in, Because it's so easy to live in a divided way, to think that we can have um, many different forms or to think that we're not in the right form. And I think that it's so important to really get behind the form that one is currently in, 
whatever that form may be. It's not to say that it might not need to change or might, might not change at some point, but there's some level of division occurring where we're neither here nor there if we're not really where we are. Some years ago, I was in the living room and I was sitting around just feeling like I wanted to be quiet. And Michael, the person that I'm married to, wanted to have a conversation, so he started chatting with me from the kitchen. And I answered in my usual way, you know, what a horrible thing to do, to chat with me when I want to be quiet. And so I answered in my usual way, which was, you know, yup, nope, nope, yup, you know. <laughs> nope, nope, yup, yup. And, you know, he got the drift. He's a sensitive kind of guy, and he, he got the idea that I didn't want to talk. And he finally said, you don't want to talk right now. You know, I said, nope. And, <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. But I was observing uh, my mind at that point. I was observing the thoughts. And the thoughts were going in the direction of, oh, it was so nice when I lived alone. Maybe I want to live alone again. You know, maybe, maybe that's the really the right way to do it is to be by myself. And it was so interesting and remarkable to me, you know, that level of what I would call indulgence in that way of thinking because, you know, there's no way divorce was going to happen the next day or, or, you know, ever. And yet there was this division occurring. And it was so interesting to me. And what was actually happening was a moment of aversion. That's all, you know. Things not happening the way I wanted them to happen. And what was, um, what was interesting about it was, of course, you know, a little bit of wisdom started to enter in in the seeing of the mind. And so I was able to say, I don't want to talk right now, instead of making him be the one to have to, have to do that. But also this deeper lesson around how we are in the form that we're in. And in not embracing it fully, we totally miss our life. We completely miss what is actually happening, which is basically thought, feeling, emotion, um, body sensations, breath, you know, not a big deal, really not a big deal. So can we embrace fully the form that we find ourselves in? Hmm. There are two big helps, I think, in daily life practice. One of these helps is the daily sitting practice, is really finding a time to sit every day, even for a few minutes. For those of us who have been around a while, we know that one sits a retreat like this, and then one still finds it not so easy to sit sometimes in the midst of one's daily life. If you're here for the first time, there could easily be that delusion that after sitting so many hours that it'll be a cinch when one gets home to find the time. And it won't be. It just won't be. You know, life has a way of crowding in on one. And I think it's so essential that one make the sitting a priority with a sense of it doesn't have to be for this enormously long amount of time. You know, even five minutes a day is a wonderful thing to do if one is completely earnest and committed in those five minutes. You know, longer is fine, half an hour, hour, whatever. It's very individual. But to find some time during each day, you know, really every day, to be with oneself, I think is really, really essential. The other help 
is having Dharma friends, Dharma buddies. And, you know, some of us are in environments where we have a lot of Dharma buddies. We have a center around us, and it's very easy. One just goes to that center. And for others of us, we're more on our own. And all you need is one person. You don't, you don't need a whole crowd. You don't need a whole group. Really, all one needs is one person. But I do think it's really helpful to have one person that one connects with, sits with, is able to talk about these things with. You know, some sense of like-mindedness, um, of like-heartedness with. And there's, there's all sorts of ways one can do this. I, I have a friend, we used to sit together um, you know, for three hours at a time, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, or however many sit, walks fit into three hours. But it was a date. You know, that's how we connected was, was this date of, of sitting together in that way. And it's very good for friendship, of course, and of course it's really strengthening for one's own practice. Kind of a, you know, Dharma date. Deeply listening. Deeply listening. Sensitivity and deeply listening. Deeply listening to ourselves. Deeply listening to others. Deeply listening to this world. With, to some degree, some equanimity. You know, if we only listen to others, we're really going to be in big trouble. If we only listen to our own thoughts, we are, we are really going to be in big trouble. You know, probably more trouble if we believe our thoughts. One really wants to listen, I think, in the deepest way possible to whatever it is that's occurring in front of us, right under our nose, to whatever it is that's occurring. The question is, when we're sitting, can we just sit? Can we lay aside everything else, lay aside our plans, lay aside our fantasies, lay aside our ideas, and just sit? And then the question is, when we move into action, can we sit in the midst of action? You know, can we keep a certain degree of listening, of steadiness going in the midst of action? To sit throughout the day. I mean, you know, instead of getting as exhausted and tired as we usually do, it's so restful, this image, anyway, this image of sitting throughout the day. It sounds a lot better than, you know, being in agitation. So one can move very quickly as we need to do throughout the day. You know, sometimes one has to move really, really fast. But there can, the practice offers us this possibility of sitting still in the midst of action. Sitting still in the midst of needing to move very quickly. A big part of practice, of course, is remembering to listen, is not forgetting to listen. And we do forget to listen. When we do forget to listen, that's when suffering occurs. That's when the situation begins to overpower us, to overwhelm us, to rule us in some way, to be all of life instead of a part of life when we forget to deeply listen we find that everything is impossible in life. We find that everything is too difficult in life. And then in just one moment of remembering to listen, remembering to soften and to open, and to hear not just 
the narrow aspect of the repetitive thought or the strong feeling, but to open up and to listen to all of life. In just one moment, things can, can change. Things can dissolve, and we can see things in a totally different way as not a problem. You know, not that there aren't challenges and situations that need to be handled, but not as a problem. And this is such a very different way to live. So when we see ourselves creating what we're calling a problem, it's probably an indication that we need to expand our listening. We need to listen more deeply. We need to listen with more expansiveness. We need to include the chirp of the bird in our listening. You know, not to just listen to our, our anger, not to just listen to our agitation, but as well to listen to the breeze on the body, to listen to the sound of the cars, you know, to really extend our listening as far and as deep as is possible to do. And to see what happens in the midst of that devotion to deep listening. Some years ago, I went through a very difficult time. And I realized, actually, that it was fruit of practice. <laughs> you know, that I practiced quite diligently, quite earnestly, and so here was the fruit. You know, that's really what it was. And if we can relate to everything, if we're practicing as fruit of practice, then it's just something else to work with. Instead of being bogged down and burdened by problems, it's something else to help us to expand a bit more, to come to a bit more freedom in our lives. When we forget to listen, we're lost in reactivity. And in reactivity, we lose ourselves. In the moment of awareness, in the moment of seeing that we've lost ourselves, we're awake and sensitive once again. It only takes a moment. It doesn't take hours. It doesn't take days. It doesn't take lifetimes. It just takes a moment. Let me finish with what I began the retreat with. And reminding you again that Avalokiteshvara is the, I love that word, Avalokiteshvara, is the uh, personification of compassion. So, we evoke your name, Avalokiteshvara. We aspire to learn your way of listening in order to help relieve the suffering in the world. You know how to listen in order to understand. We evoke your name in order to practice listening with all our attention and open-heartedness. We will sit and listen without any prejudice. We will sit and listen without judging or reacting. We will sit and listen in order to understand. We will sit and listen so attentively that we will be able to hear what is being said and also what has been left unsaid. We know that just by listening deeply, we already alleviate a great deal of pain and suffering. It's a sacred suffering. <laughs> <laughs> That's transmission. <laughs> 
A few things um, I would like to say. Uh, one area I think is very important is to very deeply acknowledge that a, a spiritual life is not just an inner life, but it is also to do with our life outside of inner meditation. That a spiritual life is not just to do with what we, with what happens on a cushion, but with what happens in our lives. Certainly, in Buddhist teaching, there is so much of the teaching that is dedicated to inner exploration, to the psychology of meditation, to the path of liberation. But there is actually an equal amount in in Buddhist teaching, which is actually dedicated to living wisely and living in a meditative way. You know, if you look at the Eightfold Path, which is one of the, you know, essential teachings of, of Buddhist teaching, you know, it is concerned not just with wise meditation, with wise understanding. It is equally concerned with wise speech, with wise livelihood, with, with wise thought. You know, this kind of format we have here of um, these intensive meditation retreats, to some extent, they are a Western invention. You know, we have invented this form. Um, Those of us who began teaching in the West basically invented, uh, to some extent, this particular form Um, for obvious reasons, you know, acknowledging that uh, people have lives that uh, they need to be engaged with, can only take limited times for, for practice. And so this form came about as a way of offering an experiential understanding of practice. Um, in Asia, it's, it's often not like this. Certainly when I began my own practice in Asia, You know, it wasn't a concept of going into a retreat. It was a concept of you just lived a Dharma life. You know, you practiced, you studied, you had periods of intensive practice, periods of less intensive practice. But that all the time the central theme was to to further my understanding of the Dharma. For, you know, and this form that we have here has tremendous benefits, but I think sometimes the what I might call a limitation that comes is that it's very easy to formulate the idea that um, this is all of what meditation practice is about. You know, that I've had my retreat experience and now I go out and I do something different. Um, Whereas that is clearly not the intention. What we do on a more intensive retreat are to sow the seeds of understanding, to sow the seeds of wise intention, but also acknowledging that transformation is not just an inner path, that it has to do with the way of our lives. And that is an acknowledgement of interdependence, of interconnectedness, which again is so much at the heart of this teaching, that all things are interdependent, all things are interconnected. And so too is the quality of our inner life connected with all that we do in the rest of our lives. That there are no separate compartments. 
you know, and so sometimes really having a, you know, the unfortunate thing that happens if we tend to regard uh, meditation as something that only happens on a retreat or happens on a cushion is that there is, you know, an inclination then to go through these cycles of erosion where we feel we leave a retreat or we leave a cushion and then we gradually feel that things deteriorate or, you know, we lose a sense of our practice, you know, until maybe we finally end up sort of desperate and bereft and then we think it's time to do another retreat again. And this is a totally unnecessary experience. Um, it has something to do with what we call in the Buddhist tradition wrong view. Um, in the sense that, you know, in some way we are not nurturing our path in our lives. And this is actually our invitation and our challenge to nurture our path in our lives. And sometimes, and many times, this does really mean not only exploring the landscape of our inner world, but exploring the landscape of our outer world, acknowledging the interconnectedness and acknowledging that very basic kindergarten of wisdom of, and graduate school of wisdom of really knowing what it is that contributes to well-being, to clarity, to harmony, and what it is that contributes to confusion and disharmony and conflict. This is not difficult. As I mentioned at the beginning of this retreat, you know, we come on retreat because of wisdom. And the story of our lives is always available for us to read. You know, we don't need an expert to read the story of our lives. We can look into our lives, all of it, you know, our relationships, our works, our choices, our what we call our leisure time, our, our interactions, we can look into the story of our lives and ask ourselves, where here, you know, is the seed of well-being, clarity and understanding, and where here is the story of confusion or conflict? And I would really encourage you not to get into a spiritually neurotic position which says, you know, that everything in the world is totally okay and it's only me that has a problem with it, you know, and that if only I change my attitude to all things, then, you know, I will have harmony. Now, many times this may be true. Certainly many times this may be true if we look into situations of conflict or tension. We may very well see that that conflict and tension is born of resistance or holding or contraction or an unwillingness to see. But quite frankly, you cannot always meditate yourself into harmony. You know, there are times in our lives and in our world, clearly we only need to look around us in our world to say that some things are not acceptable in the sense that they lead to conflict and to pain, to alienation to fragmentation, and it is not only inner attention that is needed, sometimes clearly it is outer attention that is needed, you know, to be able to acknowledge really what are the kind of themes of well-being and what are not. 
And I think to have that acknowledgement is very important. Also, we know we've spoken so much about simplicity on this retreat, and I think probably also appreciated the benefits of simplicity. You know, how it does give us so much more space to listen, so much more space to be present. And we've also experienced that simplicity actually doesn't happen without renunciation. That these two are inseparable companions. Um, And this too is something to explore in our lives. Sometimes our lives are crowded in a way that they don't always need to be crowded. Sometimes our lives are crowded because of, you know, too much desire for pleasure or for avoidance or for distraction or for being apart from ourselves. And I think simplicity is something that we can look to in our lives. You know, I understand this. We've invented this new word called multitasking, which is being promoted as a virtue. Um, You know, and multitasking means the capacity to competently handle more than one thing at a time and survive it, you know. And apparently this is something recommended to put on your CV, that you're good at multitasking. You know, and there are times, you know, when we actually need to not get sucked into these things, you know. It's better to put on our CV, you know, that I'm a total failure at multitasking, you know. (laughs) But I do one thing at a time really well. In it. I mean, to really look at where even without this concept, you know, we get into multitasking, you know. Even when we sit, you know, oh, I've got half an hour sitting, you know, I can plan my dinner party menu, you know. I mean, this is multitasking, you know. When we walk to the bus stop, you know, we might think, oh, it's a good time for a few fantasies, you know, or departures. Well, no, this is a good time to walk to the bus stop, you know. It's that simple, you know, of knowing where we are kind of getting, getting lost, you know. And the more lost we feel within ourselves, the more do we crave actually multitasking. This is the truth. You know, the more lost we feel in ourselves, the more do we fi- try to find ways to make that sense of being lost feel comfortable. And this is... Um, a great, I think, a great danger in our lives that we want to make lost a comfortable place to hang out in. You know, and the way that we try to make feeling lost comfortable is essentially sometimes um, getting into the policy of stuffing our sense doors as thoroughly as we possibly can. You know, and this is a, a kind of a chronic illness in our culture. I mean, I don't know what it's like in America, you know, but I sit on the train in England and I see it all the time, you know, that sitting on the train, you know, you, how many sense doors can you have working at one moment, you know? I mean, you can read a newspaper, eat, have your Walkman on, your mobile telephone in your pocket, and be fantasizing at the same time, and you've got everything going, you know? It's like, and we're actually calling that pleasure. You know, we've learned to call that pleasure. This is not pleasure, this is overload, you know, and overload means tension. 
And there are many opportunities, actually, in, in Buddhist teaching. You know, mindfulness around the sense doors is a very important part, and it is something that is really valuable in our lives. You know, if you walk down a city street, well, if you can walk that down that street lost, you know, with the eyes wandering hungrily, the ears wandering hungrily, you know, there's this sound, that sound, sometimes not hungrily, but choicelessly. Or you can also walk down that street actually really being attentive to one sense door at a time. You know, where is my sense of wakefulness here? And if we actually learn to do that, I, I feel we learn to read the Dharma in our world. You know, and I, I think this is much of Dharma practice. You know, we learn to read the Dharma in our world. It's always there, you know. The Dharma is always there. You know, you can walk down the street, you know, perceiving impermanence, perceiving no self, perceiving suffering and its cause, perceiving letting go. You know, you learn to read the Dharma in nature. You know, you learn to read the Dharma in other people. It becomes a way of, of vitality. Um, sometimes also something that is actually quite helpful in terms of nourishing or keeping alive a sense of nourishment outside of retreat is actually to work a little bit creatively with some reflective Dharma themes in our lives. Um, not to feel that our, our practice is just sitting, but that our practice is actually also investigation and inquiry. And you can take a theme, you know, for a week at a time, you know, something like, like wise speech, which includes listening. And you just make it a little bit your focus in the day, you know. You put it on, a, a note on your wall, you see it the first thing in your, when you get up in the morning, you put it by your telephone, you know. What is wise speech, you know. And just to have that focus and to carry that focus through is tremendously learning experience. You know, sometimes to take a theme like dana or generosity. And dana is not just about giving, you know, objects or finances. Dana is also about generosity of heart. You know, when we, if we take that theme for a week, you know, like when we're in the supermarket, do we actually seek that generosity of really connecting with the person who serves us? You know, do we greet them? Do we smile at them? Rather than just feeling this is something I rush through. When we meet the person on the street, you know, is there some way that we can actually really be present, really have a sense of relatedness? You know, you can take a theme like aversion. Just focus on it for a week at a time. You know, really be noticing that theme in your lives, not in a self-conscious or in a judgmental way, but as a way of actually highlighting, to some extent highlighting, what is actually present. You know, how that actually helps you to be more clear. Also acknowledging that the, the tremendous patience that is required in developing this path, you know, it's not something that is linear and progressive, you know, that I sit and I get better and better and better at it. You know, it's a, it's a path of valleys and peaks often, you know, especially in the beginning. I mean, as you develop, certainly those valleys and peaks begin to kind of fade away and there is more of a consistent sense of presence. But not expect, not expecting, you know, just this linear development. And really knowing the patience to be with the valleys are often the deepest times of learning in our lives. And you may, you may leave here, you know, and feel, you know, you get into a situation, you know, you go home, see your mom or your, you know, your partner and, 
uh, or your, your workplace, you know, on the first day you blow up and you think, oh, you know, I didn't learn anything at all, you know. There I am again. But you can't measure things in that way. The remarkable patience of, of compassion, of forgiveness, of coming back, that these are not kind of, you know, interludes of failure, that these are the times that actually are asking us to begin again, to let go, to begin again. And that's part of that simplicity and renunciation and part of that patience, you know, of always being willing to begin again. Many of you know this Zen story, you know, of a person who went into a monastery to practice where the practice was all in silence and they had an interview once a year where they were only allowed to speak two words. And after one year of practice, the student went to the teacher and the teacher said, well, you know, how are things going? And the student said, bed hard. And the teacher said, you know, go back, practice some more, you know. Another year went by, you know, practicing diligently. Time for the interview came up. You know, the teacher said, how are things going? The student said, food bad. You know, the teacher said, go back, practice some more. You know, another year went by, you know. Time for the interview again, two words. The teacher said, oh, what's up? And the student said, I quit. Well, <laughs> patience is not the I quit part. Patience is, okay, this is, you know, my reality. I don't quit, you know. I hang in there. This is where I'm asked to begin again, not to draw conclusions, not to create images, not to use awareness as a sensor. Not to use, awareness has no judgment. You know, awareness is endlessly forgiving, You know, it is a place of returning again and again. Awareness is not a sensor, you know, some more kind of enlightened inner critic that hangs around and says, you know, are you doing well here? Are you doing terribly there? That's not awareness. You know, that is kind of the the voice of the judge trying to appropriate awareness and, and say it's mine. You know, but the awareness actually embraces the judge and learns to let go. Acknowledging the, the great value of silence and solitude, the great value of silence and solitude. You know, taking times, as Narayan said, to be still, to be still. It is a symbol amidst a world of so many other symbols. You know, and so many of the symbols in our world, many of them may be wonderful, but it is also no shortage of symbols in our world that are endlessly telling us to become, to achieve, to control, to be someone else, to get somewhere else, to be perfect. All of those endless symbols that are kind of shoved in our face on a daily basis. And it is important in this world of symbols that we are also nurturing our own symbols, a sense of what is sacred, of what is valuable, of what is helpful and useful. And taking times for stillness and solitude is clearly a way, actually, of nurturing those symbols in our own lives that are a refuge, a place of returning and reminding us of the importance of listening, the importance of living in a sacred way, the importance of being dedicated to to freedom and to understanding. Um, 
also acknowledging, you know, that here in, in a short retreat, and, you know, I know some of you have referred to this as a long retreat. This is, I'm sure it's a very long retreat, you know, if you've only ever sat 15 or 20 minutes before, but this is, in truth, is actually a very short retreat. Um, there is a value in considering the possibility of undertaking longer retreats. Um, I am a huge supporter of long-term practice. Part of my work throughout the year is, is working with people who are on long-term retreats, you know, for three months, six months, nine months. Um, that might seem like a horrible thought to you right now. Um, but there is certainly a value in, you know, if it is at all possible in our lives to think of taking a time of no end, you know, no short-term endings. Um, I, I just put that out there as a possibility, you know, to even entertain, because there is something, a great richness that can be held not only in times of, you know, group retreats and short retreats. I think they're absolutely wonderful and a tremendous richness. But also to know that that other dimension of practice exists. You know, and here at IMS, there are people who are on long-term retreat, people who have been here for, for months, if not years. I sort of consider them part of the furniture. You know, every time I come here, I say, oh, there's Scott. You know, he's still sitting, you know. He was here last year and the year before, you know. There he is. He's still here, you know. Uh, similarly, in England, you know, we always have people on long-term retreats and um, welcome it and support it very much. And just on, on that theme, I just want to mention this is a particular uh, time of transition in, in certainly in my work in England. After being in a centre for 12 years that we founded, we yesterday uh, moved into a new... Well, we didn't move, but we bought it yesterday, this fantastic new convent in the countryside. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, one of the great values of it is that it offers a hermitage wing you know, its own hermitage wing, and we'll hope to fill up with long-term yogis. And if you ever consider it, you're also welcome there. You know? Acknowledging the ways in which actually we nurture a sense of vitality and nourishment in our practice. Times alone, times still, times in nature, times with other people. You know, times of relationship, times of solitude. This is the nature of our lives. Our lives includes all of this. Sometimes it's not always pleasant. You know, that is the truth of it. I, I find it a curious karma in my life, you know, that is, you know, because I have such a, a passion for silence and solitude that, uh, you know, I've... Uh, a teenage daughter, you know, who loves to play rock and roll, you know, like totally loud, you know, and this is part of my life, you know, that I know every Oasis song from beginning to ending. And it's just an interesting experience, you know, that that which we might not choose still comes to us, you know, that's quite amazing part of life that what we don't choose still comes to us. And if we're struggling to be in control, certainly in my situation, it would result in tremendous tension. 
and learning to appreciate what comes to us even if it's not what we choose, you know. At the very least, I learn the lyrics for the Oasis songs, you know. And at the very best, I learn to a sense of tolerance and openness and acceptance, you know. And these things come to us. There are always these double levels, you know. We may, it may, we may not choose it, but we may not be able to control it. And here we are. And how are we, how are we really present with this? You know, how are we really present with this? This is always our, our key question and our invitation to opening and to deepening. Okay, so that's all that I wanted to mention. Oh, also I wanted to mention our sense of gratitude for your dana in this retreat, really appreciating that the dana that you offer on this retreat is truly what allows the teaching to continue. And for myself, you know, living a life which is almost entirely supported by dana, I continue to be delighted and so gladdened by this sense of people's commitment to the dharma, um, commitment to teaching. And, it, you know, it is an interesting life living on Donna because it's certainly a life of, of trust, you know, a life that's, that's so different from what is the norm in our world. You know, a couple of years ago, I had an incredibly interesting discussion with the income tax department about Donna. And basically, they, they thought I was uh, defrauding, you know, they thought this could not be true that no one would actually choose to do this. They were so surprised, and I said, you know, there's a whole bunch of people out here in this world who actually choose to do this. But it is a life of trust, and it is a life which is supported, and really extending our thanks to you for this. Um, Just to end our retreat, just a short meta period. In these last minutes of our time here, just calmly and gently returning once more to settle into our bodies and to settle into this moment. Cultivating a sense of ease, of connection, a willingness to be present with all that this moment brings to us our bodies, our feelings, our thoughts, the sounds that come, our awareness of everyone else in the room, in the building. Just resting within that sense of ease and welcome, not struggling anywhere, but softening inwardly and softening to this moment with a sense of friendliness and warmth. And offering to yourself a genuine sense of appreciation and gratitude. Honoring the the efforts, the commitment, the courage, 
of being here through these days, honoring that inner quality of steadiness and devotion, and extending inwardly a genuine sense of warmth, of loving kindness and friendliness that has no enemies and no opponents. May I be free from conflict and danger. May I be free from fear. May I live with a peaceful heart. May I live embracing with friendliness all things or people that come into my world. May I live with well-being. And in the same spirit of warmth and friendliness, extending a genuine sense of appreciation to each woman in this room, each person in this building, who in their own ways have supported our own path and our own wakefulness, who to all those who have served us, have taken care of us, to all those that we have sat and walked with, honoring that interconnectedness and extending and offering genuine sense of warmth and friendliness and loving-kindness. May you be free from conflict and danger. May you be free from fear. May you live with a peaceful heart. May you find joy in your life. May you rest in well-being. extending and offering that same warmth and friendliness to all of those in our lives who we love and care for, who are close to us, our friends and children, partners, families, offering to them our sense of appreciation, of warmth and friendliness. May they be free from conflict and harm. May they be free from fear. May they live with a peaceful heart. May they rest in well-being. And offering that same warmth and friendliness all of those in our world who at this moment, who, those who we don't know, who at this moment may be living with hunger or terror, with sadness of heart, with loneliness, with illness and separation. 
May they be free from conflict and harm. May they be free from fear. May they find peace in their hearts. May they find peace in their lives. And resting in a sense of friendliness and well-being. Extending that gift of loving kindness to all beings in this world, far and near, known and unknown, the creatures on the earth, and the birds in the sky, in the oceans. May all beings be free from danger and harm. May all beings be free from fear. May all beings live in peace. May all beings rest in well-being. May all beings be at peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with one another. May all beings live in peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.